0: Today's scripture reading is in John chapter 17. So if you have a Bible, please open it because uh, I apologize in advance that we did not prepare a slide. Oh, someone did. (laughs) Okay, miracle. I love that. Okay, so uh, let's stand and Read the scripture together as a congregation. John chapter 17, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, and the Son may glorify you. Since you have given the authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, And this is the eternal life that you, you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, have accomplished the work that you've given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. All minds are yours, and yours are mine and i am glorified in them i am no longer be in the world but they are in the world and i am come to you holy father keep them in your name which you have given me that they may be one as we are in one this is the word of the lord Thanks. thank you you may be seated to Pastor Han. Good
1: morning. Pleasure to be with you this morning, and as we are continuing in the book of John, and we have come to a very significant Uh, turning point in the relationship that jesus has with his disciples and so we will be investigating that further today as we come into john chapter 17 and we look at the high priestly prayer of christ and so as we come now to our passage this morning let us also turn to the lord in prayer father god Even as we come into your word and we come as a congregation together to you, we remember that your son also presented us before you, that his grace, his blessing, his power, his strength, his truth might be given to us, the people that you have given to him. And we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, that you would give us clarity, that you would give us understanding, and you would give us wisdom to live as your holy people, a calling that is great and high beyond our imagining and understanding, and yet a reality that you bring each one of us your people into. And we pray, Lord, this morning that as we look at your truth, that we would gain strength, power, and understanding of what we have in your Son, Jesus Christ, and what you have given to us and the ability that you've given to us to live not according to the principles of this world, but according to a new, and greater principle which you have brought and given to us we pray this in jesus christ's name amen and so we are in john chapter 17 and as uh, jackie was leading us this morning she mentioned that we have been in the passage before in john chapter 15 and 16 where we have been looking at the idea of abiding in christ and last week Pastor Adam brought us into the prayer of our great high priest in John chapter 17. And this marks a certain kind of transition. Because in John chapter 15 and 16, we see Jesus giving instructions to his disciples. And now he turns and he prays to his father and he asks God to glorify him in order that he might glorify the father and as pastor adam showed us last week this then the glory that jesus asks the father to glorify the son with and which the son in turn works to glorify the father becomes the foundation for everything that we will see in this prayer that the Son might glorify the Father is the reason for which Jesus will ask the Father to do all the things that he does in this prayer. Now, one implication of this is that our redemption, our salvation, the salvation that each one of us has and lives in, is not the primary purpose that Jesus came into this world to accomplish if someone asked you why Jesus came into this world I imagine that most of our answers would run along something along the lines of Jesus came into this world to save us from our sin and that is true but the implication of this passage is that while Jesus did come into this world to save us from our sin, that our salvation, our redemption, Jesus' work of saving us from our sins, is not the end, but rather a means to an end. And that end is the glory of God. And in our me-centered world, that's something that we can perhaps say but it's something that's very difficult to emotionally live in and think that my salvation here is not the important thing, but rather it is something that serves an even more important end, which is the glory of God. Now, when I was working as an attorney and I was talking to one of my colleagues, she asked me this question Why? is god so interested in his own glory and so uh, she was a buddhist and so this was one of the things that as i was talking to her about christianity she thought this is this is kind of strange why is it that god is so concerned with his own glory isn't that kind of self-seeking isn't that kind of a selfish attitude to have why should god be so bound and determined to seek his own glory. And as we look at that question, I want us to connect this with another uh, perhaps question or something that would be emotionally, something that would be harder for us to buy into that we saw in the last passage. And I want to put these two kind of more difficult things together and try to see if we can work out the difficulty in these two things. And so this other thing that we saw in the previous passage is what is the sin qua non or the essential condition of our relationship with God? What is an essential condition of our having a relationship with God? Well, we see this repeated over and over in the passage through the, the Last Supper that Jesus had with his disciples. And it is this idea that in order for us to have a relationship with God, we must keep his commandments. Uh, Just giving you a few of the many references we have uh, uh, on that point. John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them, he it is who loves me. John chapter 14, 23 and 24. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. John chapter 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love john chapter 15 verse 14 you are my friends if you do what i command you as we look at those verses we get the very strong sense that if we are to abide in the love of christ if we are to have a relationship with him we must do what keep his commandments <clears throat> and so this morning i want to bring these ideas together on the one side why is it so important so essential to a relationship with god that we keep his commandments and on the other side why is god so preoccupied with his glory and is there a way in which these two ideas work together. And so the condition of our being in a relationship with God is dependent upon our keeping his commands. And on the other hand, his prayer to the Father shows that the entire purpose of the work of redemption is for the mutual glory of the Father and the Son. And so we're going to explore these ideas in the prayer of our Lord through the next few weeks. Our task today is to begin exploring the connection between them. And as we begin to understand how the glory of God is connected to the obedience of his people, we will also discover something else. We will also discover the beauty of God. And the power that he gives us to keep his commandments and the blessing that we enter into when we live in his love and abide in his words. And so how does this, what is the context of this prayer and what is the context of the commands to the disciples? Well, to give you an analogy, we can think of the relationship between John chapter 15 and 16 and John chapter 17 as kind of like this, where Jesus first gives commands to his disciples, and then he turns to his father and he prays for them. Uh, We could think of this as a company, where Jesus is the one who brings management together with the labor, and he gives his commands to those who are under him. And then he appeals to the management to give those workers everything that they need to succeed and prosper. Another way we could look at this is like a football team where Christ is the quarterback and he's receiving the instructions from the coaches and passing them along to the players and telling them what it is that they are to do. And he puts them in a place to succeed while bearing The brunt of the burden himself and so looking at the relationship between what happens in the commands that he gives his disciples and then as he turns to pray to the father we see that kind of dynamic where he instructs those over whom he has authority and then he appeals to his father who has given him authority But how does obedience to Christ, which is the central idea in the commands given to us, relate to, on the other hand, the purpose for redemption, which is the foundation of his prayer to the Father? One of the things we will see here is that things may be defined in a way that might be unexpected to us but in the end will reveal a deeper and richer understanding of our relationship to God. And so let's look at John chapter 17 and these five verses. When Jesus had spoken these words, the commands to his disciples, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And so how is it that the Father and the Son are glorified? And we see here in this passage that in the work of redemption, God is glorified. And so when we talk about the glory of God, The way in which the glory is accomplished is through this giving of eternal life to all whom God has given, God the Father has given to God the Son. And so in chapter 17, verse 2, we see this dynamic. The Father designs the plan of redemption in order to glorify the Son through his giving of eternal life and in response the son works for the glory of the father by providing redemption to all those given to him or elected for salvation but then there's another twist in verse three what is eternal life And if I asked you that question, especially if I asked you the question before you came into the service, I think most people would connect eternal life with the idea of living for a very, very, very long time. But look at what Jesus calls eternal life in verse 3. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so How is knowing God the Father eternal life? And so here is another aspect of a word being defined in a way that perhaps would not be intuitively obvious to us. Because when we think of eternal life, we probably think of not dying or a life that would continue. But here, Jesus says, eternal life is knowing the Father how can we look at that? Let me give you an illustration. And this is just a way for me to start rambling a little bit about my family, uh, which is something that every father likes to do. But we had a wonderful development in our family this last week, which was we have been in the process of sleep training our youngest, Tobiah, who's appearing over a few members of our congregation over on that side of the sanctuary. And it's been a an interesting journey. We've, we've sleep-trained him later than we did perhaps with our other children, and part of it is that uh, through the time that we probably would normally have done it, we were in this transition coming to Pittsburgh, and so we were kind of unsettled in sort of uh, moving in back and forth and, and, and uh, not having a regular place where we would uh, sleep. And so we tended to just like uh, okay, we'll sleep train him later and we'll just hold him and keep him. And so this put a big burden on Irene, but one that we preferred to him just screaming at us, which was she would just hold him, hold him, hold him until he finally fell asleep. Then we would lay him down and we'd keep him in the same room with us. But now we were sleep training him. And the unfortunate development of doing it later is he's much more aware. And he's old enough now to understand, oh, it's coming to bedtime. And bedtime means mommy's going to now put me in a different room. And so you could already see, like, as bedtime was approaching, he started doing things like saying, never leave me alone. (laughs) Well, that was tough. (laughs) But once we did set him down he would just start screaming and one night he he screamed so much he, he, he couldn't talk the next day he'd lost his voice from all the screaming he did so uh one, the next night when we put him down and he started screaming i thought okay one thing was like Irene and my, I are wired a little differently. Screaming really gets to me. And so I was like, I can't take I can't take it. So I went over and, and he, he, he sort of won in a way because I went over and I picked him up. But I thought, okay, we are sleep training him. So I have to do something. So I said, I'll reason with him. I'll explain to him why it is that he should lie in his bed and not scream at us. And so I, I talked to him about how he's getting older and how he wasn't sleeping in his crib anymore and he had his own bed and his bed was in the room with his brothers and he really needed to learn how to lay down in the room with his brothers. And this was the amazing thing. It actually worked. <laughs> I reasoned with a two year old and, and he listened and, and he agreed that it was reasonable and he laid down and he stopped screaming and which was, it was really kind of amazing. Now, the next night, we had to go through the exact same process again. I had to explain the whole thing to him again, and he was uh, he, he started screaming. But here's the thing. He understood in his little two-year-old mind, he, he grasped that there was a goodness, there was a rightness to as he was getting older and as he got his own bed and the bed was a bigger bed than he had before, Uh, and that he had responsibilities and privileges. We talked about some of the privileges that he had. Now, some of the responsibilities that went along with it. He saw that he wanted these things, and so it was good for him to actually listen to my words. He saw the goodness of my commands to him. And when we look at the commands of God, the commands that Christ gives his disciples, we can see the same thing because God is like that. In fact, he's called a father. And a father gives, at least a good father does, I don't always, but a perfect heavenly father always gives commands that are good for his children. God is a father who desires the very best for us. And he is willing to make whatever sacrifice he must in order to provide to his children what they need. And here's a very interesting point, which is true about the Christian God in a way that cannot be true of any other God. Which is that in God's case, this is an essential aspect of the nature of God that God is love. Now, why is this so very special about the triune God? It is special because God is Father, Son, and Spirit, three persons, and yet one God. And one theologian points out that only an eternally triune God can have love as an essential Attribute, because only with a triune God is there another person to love. And so in the case of the Father and the Son, you have one who loves, one who is beloved, and a bond of love between them. As Jonathan Edwards puts it, heaven is a world of love. And what we see in this passage is that there is this bond of love between father and son. And this community, this world of love that is where God is, is one that he invites his people to join. And so in in one sense, what we can see his commands as is that his commands are the invitation for his people to enter in to this community of love. The Father and Son invite us through the Holy Spirit to enter into the eternal love of the community of heaven. So one of the objections that my lawyer friend that I told you about at the beginning of this sermon was an objection to a god who would seek his own glory. Now, we object to people who are glory hounds because they're seeking their own glory and they're seeking to exalt themselves above other people. And there are a number of reasons we would object to this. But we would find that in terms of the kinds of objections that we would have to someone who seeks their glory, all of these objections fail when it comes to God. Because If I were to ask all of you to glorify me and to exalt me, one of the things we would have to do is we'd have to ignore all the failings and the imperfections that I have. Or we would have to exalt certain aspects of my character and downplay all the negative aspects of my character. But in the case of God, God is perfect. There is a rightness, to exalting god that is not true about exalting any created being because god is the epitome of all that is good and right and by exalting what is good and right we agree with the goodness and the rightness of who god is just as tobiah in a sense had a small level of agreement with me on that night where he consented to lay down and go to sleep on his own When we see the goodness of who God is, and we agree with the rightness of his commands, we glorify him. And in the case of God's commands, they are good commands for which agreement is a right thing to do. But another aspect of why we would seek to glorify God and what God does in glorifying himself is Part of the nature of God, as we see here, which is part of the goodness of his nature, is that God is one who is disposed toward the other. That is to say, God is a God of love. Because it is the Father who seeks the glory of the Son. And in the work of redemption, plans the course and the history of this world in order to glorify the son and it is the son who in response seeks after and works to glorify the father and so where we think of a self-seeking kind of glory this is not the glory of god god is a god who seeks to give glory to the other who loves the other And so, connecting this to what we've seen in chapter 17 and verse 3, where Jesus says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life, as we see it now, is greater than simply eternal existence. Because even those who reject God will continue to exist. Existence and continuation in being is not what is at stake in eternal life, because all will continue to exist. But what we see here in John chapter 17 is internal life involves something more, it involves knowing the good and living according to the good, because We know, when we know God, it is because we know his word, we know his commands, we know his nature, because his commands flow out of his nature. God commands us according to who he is, and God is a God of love. And as we learn to live in love, and as we learn to live in a community of love, now we experience eternal life. Mere existence without purpose without aim, is simply a living death. But life has purpose and fulfillment and joy. Now, someone might object. Well, in that case, God only redeems, him, redeems us to glorify himself. And so in one sense, we might say that God needs us. He needs creation because in saving us, he is only serving himself himself And seeking his own glory but look at verses 4 and 5 i glorified you on earth having accomplished the work that you gave me to do and now father glorify me in your own presence with the glory that i had with you before the world existed yes it is true that god glorifies himself in the work of redemption but when we look at verse 5, what we see is the Father and Son always had infinite glory. They had glory before creation in their infinite love for one another. With a triune God existing in perfect relationship in each of his three persons, there is already all the glory, a sufficiency of glory, an infinity of glory that exists between father son and spirit and so in one sense we see here a very clear um, demonstration of the true deity of christ but in another aspect of it what we see is that god does not need us because father son and spirit already exist in this community of love in creation What God does is he creates others whom he invites to enter in to this perfect community, into this world of love. And this is the essence of Jesus's command to us. As we saw in John chapter 15 and verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And this is an idea that Jesus repeats over and over this idea that we are to love one another. We know this in the first and greatest commandment, and the second, which is like it, that Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Heaven is a world of love. And the work of God and redemption is to bring us into life. And this is eternal life that we learn to live in loving community with one another. C.S. Lewis's conception of hell in the book, The Great Divorce, is simply this. That without the bonds of love that bring community together, eventually people have no reason to exist in community. If you take away the need of the community, people eventually become entirely separate from one another so that there is no relationship. It is the ab- it's the destruction of any relationship and any possibility of relationship. And so people are out of relationship with one another. They're out of relationship with God because there is not the bond of love that unites the community together. And so the essence of Jesus' commandment, that we obey his commands and that his word abide in us, is that the the outcome of Jesus' commands is that we will love one another. The commands that God gives his people accomplish this, that we would love one another. And in this, then, we have a certain power for life because knowing God is not just a knowledge of God. The demons have knowledge of God. Unbelievers can certainly learn about who God is, but simply choose not to accept him. Knowing God is a relationship with God where God's words abide in us. I do not say that we love God because none of us yet loves God with a perfect love. But as we learn to love God, we learn to live in this community of love. And what that also does is that puts an end to sin. Consider our society as we're struggling these days with the coronavirus. One of the things that we've seen throughout our society is that as we've been isolated from one another, Uh, discourse in this country has dramatically deteriorated our interactions with one another our patience with one another the kind of anger that we express towards one another have all been contributing to the deterioration of this country and of this society and this is the very danger of secularism the danger of rejecting god because god puts upon us this obligation to love one another because this is the essence of his commands and so as christians we are moved towards love for one another regardless of the need and the help and the community that we experience with one another but the world has no such reason to love god provides us in his commands In his nature, and in, as we see Jesus praying for the disciples, the power to live in this kind of community. Knowing God is also knowing the goodness of his commands, to love him with all our heart, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. And so, knowing God is to know the joy of seeking the good of another. And dwelling on God's love drives me to learn to love others. And so we see here the principle that both establishes but then transcends the law. Jesus gives us this as a command. But as we learn to live in the power of God, it becomes something more than a command. And so look at what Jesus does here. He prays for the disciples but note also that this is that this prayer of jesus is recorded for us and think about what it means that this prayer is actually recorded in the bible because if we were simply seeking to accomplish something if i was the ceo of a company to go back to one of the earlier analogies i could simply instruct my workers what to do And then if I needed to get something, uh, some resource from the management of my company, I could simply request it. But what Jesus does here is something more than that, right? Because he not only turns to the Father to ask the Father, he also lets us know that he is asking the Father. And the purpose of this is because we no longer are simply a means to an end, but have become partners into the enterprise. And this is how we know we have been uh, invited to enter into this community of love, to enjoy partnership, fellowship, and community with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Because as Jesus said, I no longer call you servants. This was back in chapter 15. And verses uh, 14 and 50. No longer do I call you servant, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. And so we are to know what it is the end to which God has created this world. And we are to know the end because that is the end. That redemption is not simply the forgiveness of sin, it's not simply the continuation of existence. But it's also the addition of this community it's also the entering into this relationship where we have entered into relationship with god the father and god the son and knowing god then becomes the end of sin and so as jesus prays for us and he prays that we would know the father the only true god and jesus christ whom god has sent This then accomplishes our salvation. Because knowing God is knowing the goodness of God's commands and the joy of obeying God's commands. And as we learn to enjoy this relationship that we have, no longer is the law the law. And so think about, again, the relationship I had with Tobiah there was a certain rule we had to enforce with him because it was good for him. And whether he agreed with it or not, we had to enforce that rule and apply it to him. And certainly uh, with, with, with sinners and with people whose dispositions is to seek the good of self, there's a certain hurdle to overcome. And so the law is needed to restrain wickedness and to restrain evil. But when the law... Changes from something which is enforced upon us that restrains what we want to do, but we recognize the goodness of it, so we delight in doing it because in it we have life. The law no longer is the law, but it becomes your joy. It becomes your delight because you see the goodness of God and you see the goodness of what he commands. And so one of the things that has been... Um, a struggle through this pandemic is how do we as human beings live in a community how do we avoid sin how do we fight the struggle against sin and the struggle against sin is a difficult difficult one but for the christian where is the power to overcome sin and it's simply in this knowing god Knowing God in more than the sense of a knowledge of God, but knowing God in the sense of having that relationship with God where we see God and we see his goodness. And so take a song like, How Great Thou Art. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he died and took away my sin when we see the loving disposition of god towards us the self-sacrifice of god to us when we walk through the forests of pennsylvania and we hear the birds and we see the deer not the deer that we're running into but the deer in the forest (laughs) we see god we see the goodness of god in his provision And here is the power of the Christian to avoid sin. Because if I look at a world without God in it, there is no purpose in it other than the purpose I would make for myself. And so there's only a self-seeking purpose, which in the end moves me towards seeking my own good, which in the end leads to sin because I will do whatever it takes to achieve my own good. But when we look at this world, and we see God reflected in the lakes. We see God reflected in the mountains. We see God reflected in the creatures. Everywhere we see the, loving, the work of a loving God towards us. Then we see a reason for existence, a higher purpose, a transcendent aspect to creation. And we come to know God. Let me suggest this the next time you're tempted to sin. Sing a verse from How Great Thou Art. And think that in the singing of that hymn, is there still that desire to sin? Because if you sing it and you meditate upon the words, and you meditate upon the self-sacrificing goodness of God, and know the goodness of his commands, and all of us have experienced the regret of sin, and seen the devastation of it in our lives, We recognize, like Tobiah, in a sense, sometimes we need these reminders because I'm a sinner ingrained with the desire to sin. But as I learn and as I grow and as I walk and come to know God, there then is the power to overcome sin because we see and understand and agree with the goodness of God. And so... Let's pray and pray that we would come to know God and to love God because when we love God, we are done with sin. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has revealed you to us and that he has given us your truth. And we pray, Lord, that we would come to know you and to know you in the sense for which jesus prayed that would not simply be a knowledge but we would see the goodness of what you have done we would meditate upon the kindness and the compassion of a god whose essential nature is love the disposition to seek the good of the other. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us to live in that community of love, that we would find joy in community, perhaps more so now than ever, as we see how much we need one another, how much the fellowship with one another is something that we long for. And even as we prepare our hearts to take communion, which is the expression of our joining all together into one community, one body, which works for one purpose and has one good, The glory of our God, which consists, at least in part, in his seeking the good of his people. We pray, Lord, that in that, our hearts would be transformed. And that this would give us the power to live holy lives. To live in obedience to these good commands. Commands which are given and purposed for our good and not our evil are given for our prosperity, not our hindrance, are given for our joy and not to suppress us. As your son said, he came to give life and that we might have it abundantly. We pray, Lord, that in the joy of obeying you, we would be done with sin and we would experience the abundant life that you desire us to have. We pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.